was more than 40 years a foreign correspondent. We actually worked at the same paper, the Toronto Star, back in the 70s. Jonathan Manthorpe then went on to work for Southern News, covering every story imaginable on the continent. The end of apartheid, the fall of the Berlin Wall, even Canada's constitutional debate from uh, the other side of the pond, from the London perspective. He has channeled those years of experience into books throughout his career, but two very recent and very powerful books in his many years have really captured our attention. The Claws of the Panda, a look at China's campaign of influence and intimidation in Canada and elsewhere. And then the latest book out just last uh, summer, Restoring Democracy in the Age of Populism and Pestilence. Uh, my God, they couldn't be more timely. Jonathan Manthorpe, welcome. Great to see you. Great to see you, Pamela. It's been a long time. It has been a very long time. Now, this book couldn't have been more um, current, prescient, uh, the, the, in the age, democracy, mm. what it means in the age of populace and, and pestilence. And I, I want to start there for a moment and then turn sure. our attention to Canada. But really populists emerge because there is some kind of demand and we're seeing it in places around the world. Oh, absolutely. And, and you know, what I tried to do with the book was show uh, some of the mistakes that have been made. We generally in sort of North Atlantic democracies, Europe, North America, um, have made since the collapse of the uh, Soviet Union uh, in the beginning in 1989 and how by inattention, we have uh, allowed large segments of our population to become, feel that they are disenfranchised, feel that they aren't heard, feel that they have no representation, feel that they have no hope. Uh, and this has created this sort of fertile bed on which demagogues um, flourish. And, uh, you know, we've seen it, obviously, in the United States. And, you know, I'm afraid that hasn't worked its way out yet, despite the departure of Trump, not in my mind anyway. We've seen it in, in Britain um, with the uh, with Brexit and uh, uh, the coming to power of Boris Johnson, uh, who I can <laughs> I, I have met several times. Um, and, and who uh, you don't like, clearly. <laughs> well, I think he's just totally untrustworthy. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and the British people are beginning to find that out. But we're also seeing it in Eastern Europe, um, the countries that uh, that joined the European Union since the collapse of the Soviet Union, particularly uh, Poland, Hungary, and to a certain extent Czech Republic, you know these um, these countries are uh, here uh, 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 have elected some populists or populist um, uh, parties really in um, uh, in rebellion against some of the sort of social pressures they feel from the EU that they don't particularly like as very conservative countries. So there are a number of elements to this. It's it's uh, it's not a it's not a clean picture. And democracies and governments haven't really been doing their work. I mean, you write a lot and, and you've written about this for years, the uh, the big blue machine, the Conservative Party in Ontario, all of that. But parties have uh, lost their appeal. We live in a different kind of culture, the screen culture. It's all about uh, uh, fame and fortune and, and not about the substance. So people don't have a, a gathering point anymore to talk about politics or perhaps their sense of alienation from it. Well, I, I think that as I, as I went through all this the last 30 years, Pamela, just sort of going through the stories I've written and going through mm -hmm. the timeline of things, I came to the conclusion, and I, and I stick to it, 
very strongly that uh, the, the fount of the problem is is disparity, is growing disparity between right. the very rich uh, who have a sense of entitlement, who have a sense of of unassailable power, and they're not all politicians, for heaven's sake. Um, you know, Silicon look some, Valley. <laughs> look at some of the people who run multinational companies, and they don't feel mm-hmm. that they are beholden to any constituency. Um, so I think uh, very strongly that that inequity that has grown up over the last 30 years, and it actually began before that. It began really with, with Reagan and Margaret Thatcher in the 1970s and early 80s. Um, this, uh, this, I think, is at the fount of the problem. And, the, and, and for me, it's the problem that we really have to address if we're going to deal with some of the political and, and democratic problems. I want to come back to uh, what you've written about Canada, and this is something for those of us who've lived in other countries. It gives you a vantage point on your own, uh, which is very, very different and sometimes a little troubling. We like to think of Canada as, you know, uh, we're envied and loved and respected around the world, and somehow we're nicer than our big bad neighbors to the south and all of these things. Are, are we the only ones that uh, think Think that I get the sense that our allies are saying, uh, "Grow up and smarten up." Well, I think you're right in that. I mean, I've heard some very unpleasant things said by Canadians while I've been abroad over the last 30, 40 years or so. Um, I mean, to a certain extent, we're doing better than other people, and we're insulated from a lot of the, the pressures and problems that have assaulted uh, other countries. That's true, but to to imagine that we don't have problems with our democracy, I think, is, uh, is, uh, is very foolish apart from anything else. I mean, you mentioned the big blue machine and uh, mm-hmm. the, the era of Bill Davis and the, you know, but not only Ontario in the 1970s, but, but other provinces as well. Those look like a golden age in hindsight, yeah. don't they? A golden age of statesmanship, even amongst provincial politicians, um, a golden age of, of democracy in Canada. I mean, We've we've gone downhill in many many ways since then, um, and I think we, uh, you know, it's not that we have to regain what we've lost. It's um, which I think is a, is always a mistake, but I think that we have to reimagine. Yeah. Uh, our democracy for this new age of all the communications uh, changes and indeed problems that, that you highlighted in your question. Well, when we think about it, I mean, that that whole discussion about uh, the repatriation, the patriation mm-hmm. of the Constitution, we did mm-hmm. see first ministers mm-hmm. sit around tables, do some hardcore negotiating face to face. This was yeah. not sending yeah. the advisors off to the back room. Or in um, hotel kitchens. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, or the hotel kitchens, although that happened too. But uh, but they talked turkey to one another. And I remember Peter Lougheed talking about his relationship with René Levesque, and they both felt outsiders, and it was a bond, and, and Lougheed was kind of the connection back to the others and all of those things. And I think that we we've kind of lost that sense of, the relationship between the provinces and Ottawa um, and so many things now end up in the courts. We've just kind of said, let the Supreme Court decide what the relationship will be. And everybody's sitting with their arms folded. Well, if I can say this to you as a parliamentarian, I think that's an abrogation of duty. And I, this is, <laughs> I've said this in the book. But, and, I know more, you have more, some more, thoughts more, on more, the Senate. Yes. <laughs> well, yeah, but more about the House of Commons in this regard right. than the Senate. Yeah. I mean, I think it's been very convenient. 
convenient for particularly members of the House of Commons uh, with uh, the added responsibilities, if you like, of the Supreme Court that came after patriation. It's been very convenient for the House of Commons to avoid social issues in particular um, and to say, oh, we'll let the, the court deal with that. But the problem with that, of course, is that it's many of these social issues that are of particular moment to the everyday lives of ordinary people. And this yeah. has helped create a division between a political class and and the voters. Uh, and you know, the, if you look at the, the polls, and I'm I, I'm not a huge fan of polls, but they do give us a glimpse sometimes, depending how they're done. Right. Um, uh, you know, if you look at the, the 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 Canadian public have no more regard for uh, the, our political classes than do. Europeans or Americans or anybody else. Um, uh, it's um, uh, this is something that, I, that that really needs to change if if um, if our particular form of democracy is going to survive with any um, with any vibrancy. Because at the moment there's a really serious division. I think uh, the COVID crisis has really put that into yeah. sharp relief. Yes, yeah. you can say to the federal government, it's your responsibility to you have gotten the vaccine here and have to made, you know, to make the yeah. tough big calls about borders and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but it's the guys on the ground, the men and women who run the provinces who are supposed to deliver yeah. uh, this into the arms of um, Canadians. And it just doesn't seem there doesn't seem to be a connection point well we don't have a national policy on this you know we have right. a, we have a bunch of of policies and if you look at the, the traffic on social media in in the last year um you know it points again and again and again to the problems in canada of um forging a national policy on anything yeah. on anything i mean we don't have a, a, a real amending formula. We don't have a substantial, fixed, understandable relationship between the federal government and the provinces. We never have, but we certainly don't now. We have a we have a, a sort of agreement not to do anything. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah. which it, uh, I mean, it, it really is a bit of a mess. And something, as you say, like COVID has, has really exposed a lot of the chinks in our national construction and, and on many other things. You know, I mean, for example, I, I think one of the things that we need to do very seriously when, when this is over is to rethink um, our, what are the essences of our national security. Mm -hmm. uh, we, you know, we can't produce vaccine. Yeah, we used absolutely. to be able to. We used, yeah. to. we used to have the Connaught Labs, but we don't have that. And we're now, you know, at the mercy of vaccine nationalism in Europe and in the United States. Um, and in China, as and you in China, as you uh, of course. No, I think that's really an important point because we let that slide. We can fight mm. about whether or not we we should have mm. made decisions faster, and whether or not yeah. the PPE should have been, you know, housed in warehouses ready for the pandemic that might that would inevitably come. Mm. Uh, but it really is uh, larger than that because if we yeah. can't even distribute. Uh, vaccines, mm -hmm. then how do we distribute in some other crisis food? Or right. what do we do about energy mm -hmm. if we don't have national um, exactly. orders or delivery systems? Like, this is a huge problem. Yeah, and we need, we need some 
I, I, I you know, it's, it's easy to talk about sort of national conversations and, and it's very difficult to arrange them in yes, any exactly. meaningful way. <laughs> um, I mean, almost impossible. But I do think that we, we, it would be a good idea to find some way of discussing some of these issues um, uh, uh, when COVID is over, because it has presented us with a picture of a lot of the cracks and fissures in our national makeup. And we really, we need, this is not going to be the last pandemic. You know, we're, we're exactly. in an age of pandemics. Yeah. Pandemics go hand in hand with globalization. And, you know, the first one was HIV AIDS back in the mid 1980s. And, uh, and we've had a whole succession of them since then. And it's, we're going to get more. Um, they may even get worse, and we need to be prepared for these things and the assaults that uh, that they they uh, they create on our on our social and political and cultural systems. And we're, at the moment, we're not. When you think about what's happened to politics, though, that um, leaders are chosen for their um, you know their ability to perform on television or look good on television or have yeah. great hair or whatever. Their brand. Uh, <laughs> their brand. brand is exactly yeah. right. Their um, whether or not they're photogenic. This is. Uh, I don't know how you get back from that in a culture that is obsessed with the screen. Yeah. Uh, in all aspects of our life. Well, you know, and hand in hand with that, as, as I've described it, uh, my view of it anyway in, in the book is hand in hand with that has been a diminution of the role of the MPs uh, in, in the whole parliamentary process and the political process in Ottawa in particular. But it's also happened in the provinces. It's the same in the provinces. Um, and one of the things that... Uh, I uh, put forward, coming out of my experience of, of looking at parliamentary and, and other political systems all around the world, um, is that the, the members of parliament should have a bigger hand in the selection of a party leader. And the, the, the reason I argue that is because that would then give uh, the leader uh, the necessity of paying more attention to maintaining the support of parliamentarians of his caucus or her caucus. Um, uh, the the British Conservatives do that. Now, it doesn't always work because it's, right. you know, it's produced Boris Johnson. But uh, but actually, of course, he is he is actually very much beholden to the backbenchers, to what is called the 1922 Committee. And the way things are going in Britain, I wouldn't surprise me if there wasn't a very strong rebellion very soon. Um, and they'll get him out. But I think they do the, have a way of taking out their leaders yeah, without yeah, yeah. <laughs> the extreme is the Australians who have a thing called what called the spill, where um even just a majority of, of, of the members of the caucus can get rid of a of a leader on a Monday morning, and they do. The, the extraordinary uh, rate at which they go through leaders is amazing. And now I think that that's extreme, but I yeah. think that it would uh, be a good idea to have the party leader more beholden and more dependent on the support of, of the caucus than, than is the case in, in the Canadian system at the moment. So how would it work in our system? Their, their votes would be weighted more heavily or no, there would have well, to be a pre-approval before yeah, they went yeah. to a leadership? This is what the, the British Conservatives have got a pretty good model. I think what happens is that the backbenchers, through a whole process of, of, of votes amongst themselves, produce two candidates 
for uh, for the leadership. Uh, and then, uh, so you know, both of those by and large are acceptable to the caucus. Um, and then those two candidates go uh, are, are voted on by the the, the, the countrywide membership of, of the Conservative Party. Um, and the result, of course, is that. Um, uh, you 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 get a, a clear victory on the first yeah. ballot. You don't go through all these yeah. shenanigans and dealings that we sometimes go through, and indeed other parties go through. Um, you uh, all that is sort of gone through uh, beforehand, and um, and it produces a, a, a clear answer. Uh, I think I think it's a pretty good system. It can be tweaked, obviously, for for, for different situations, but I think that it it does it all. It means that. Whoever the candidates are, are acceptable to the caucus to begin with. And, you know, we've had several situations in Canadian politics in uh-huh. fairly recently where the, the party membership um, out in the country has produced leaders that were not all that acceptable to the caucuses. Yeah, and and it works both ways. I mean, the Mm. trouble is when you talk about the alienation of the Mm. citizen, the voter from their system, if you concentrate even more power in the hands of those in Ottawa and many Mm. people in the country believe once the MP goes off to Ottawa, they forget where they came from, um, that, you know, if you let that group then make Mm. the decisions, you've got even more of a central Canadian bias in the system. Now, so, you know, some MPs, do, we, we must always remember, some MPs do maintain very close touch to right. their constituencies, hold clinics, you know, listen very carefully, re- reflect the uh, uh, the views of their of their constituents and so on and so forth. But, you know, I mean, one of the, I had been some intellectually slightly in favour of proportional representation mm-hmm. until I started to look at it. And my feeling... I mean, in Europe, most of the countries have proportional representation. And if you look at the, the polls and, and other things, this has not um, uh, enhanced uh, the, the citizens' feelings that they have a, a better representation and, and right. they're closer ties to their representatives. Far from it. Um, and if you look at uh, proportional representation, all the systems I've looked at and been through, one of the problems with them is that it tends to reinforce the creation of a political class that is disassociated from constituents. Right. Um, so many of, in all the systems, one way or another, um, members are selected from party lists, and that yeah. reinforces the notion of a political class that is is uh, divorced from, from a constituency. And I think that, 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 that that's, that's a step backwards. So I, I'm and, in favor of first class with the post. Yeah, well, that's where I think a lot of us have come because the other problem with proportional representation mm-hmm. is it it makes decision making and therefore policy making yeah. very very difficult as well. You can't come to a conclusion. At least yeah. under this system, mm-hmm. whoever's in power does what they want, and they either get reelected mm-hmm. or thrown out. Yeah. I mean, I think one could have parallel organisations. For example, um, you know, you referred to the Senate, and I wrote a piece in the for uh, Vancouver Sun a couple of weeks ago, suggesting that the Senate um, could become a house which looks to the future. Um, you know, one of the problems, of course, is that because we need to make decisions, we have a short uh, we have a short election span, and mm-hmm. and and governments tend to be very nearsighted. But in this day and age, 
we also we need to be able to look as 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 clearly as we can and as far as we can in the future because change comes at us so rapidly. And so what do you mean by that? You want the, the Senate and its committee structure to not have the role of check and balance on legislation, but to contemplate new issues? Well, I think a check and balance in another way. Um, okay. you know, thinking a generation ahead, thinking 20, 30 years ahead, uh, imagining uh, what current what current legislation the effect of current legislation might have a, a you know 20 30 years down the road and mm-hmm. you know where possible uh, raising warning flags and saying look you know this may look good at the moment but um, we can foresee times where or situations where this could lead to real trouble that you need to consider before you uh, before you pass this legislation i mean i i, I think we have to stay well clear of of the Senate having a veto on uh, on Commons uh, uh, activity, but I think that there is a very valuable um, uh, a discourse not only with Parliament but which but with the the public that a, that a futurist Senate, if you like, um, mm-hmm. can have um, and um, uh, you know direct communication with the public about uh, and with as with the House of Commons about stuff that's coming up over the horizon at us. I mean, that does get done to a certain extent in the committee process. Yeah, yeah. Studies that aren't focused on government legislation sometimes takes that on. But but then I think we have to decide whether, you know, you are there as a, a check on an elected House who uh, who are by and large motivated by partisan interests and getting reelected in the next round or whether you elect senators and then you have two competing elected bodies, uh, which doesn't really work either no it doesn't but you know yeah. I, mean, I think within this structure with this notion for a senate you could give the senate a political legitimacy um without it being a competing force um and that was why i i put forward in that article uh, the idea of uh, functional constituencies you know so one would have uh-huh. an elected senate but they would be you know elected uh, and I used the example of Hong Kong, where there are elections on functional constituencies, where you have you know, leaders of the legal profession, the medical profession, education, um, engineering, uh, financial services, so on and so forth. People who are are, um, are very eminent in those particular aspects of society, and it goes into arts and all all aspects of society. So a, a uh, uh, a Senate made up of of people from from those kinds of functional constituencies, but with a mandate to uh, look at current events in the framework of of where of where society, where technology, where uh, politics is going in the future, and and being able to uh, to to talk directly to the Canadian public and to the House of Commons about um, uh, about what they see coming. I think that could be valuable. The, the the last point on this discussion, but it 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 rolls into the cause of the panda and our relationship with China question is is a point we started with that this naivete that we have about our role in the world and how helpful and smart and insightful we are has actually really in my mind, and I want to hear your view on this. I've read the book, but uh, our naivete about our relationship with China, that sometime we still have the view of, 
you know, the missionaries or Pierre Elliott Trudeau in the 70s, that this is just some, you know, third world country that's moving up and we need to help them out. Um, they're eating our lunch. Yeah. Well, you know, <laughs> quite significantly, this, this new book, Restoring Democracy, came out of Mm-hmm. Uh, cause of the panda, and it came out of in a, in a, in a very particular way. Um, in uh, June, as a result of cause of the panda, in June of, of 2019, I was invited to take part in a uh, a, a conference on uh, regional security in held in Taiwan. Um, now, I you know reported on Taiwan for many years, and so right. I I know the the president uh, Tsai Ing-wen uh, from the days when she was a civil servant, a very senior civil servant, um, and. Um, uh, I was talking with her uh, after the conference, just before coming uh, home, and um, this was in the run-up to their election in in uh, January 2020. Uh, and I, from what I all I'd re- read and heard while I was there, it was very evident that the the Chinese Communist Party was making the same sort of attack on on her and her party and on politics in Taiwan as they do here. And I, we were talking about it, and I was asking her how. How does a democracy uh, deal with that kind of attack? And uh, she was saying, you know, it is really difficult because you know, the first instinct, of course, is to abandon some of your democratic beliefs and credentials. But then, of course, you uh, you play their game. Uh, right. So the difficulty is, you know, how do you sustain freedom of speech, freedom of association, and all those other things? that we believe in while fending off this attack, these attacks. And I came back and talked with my, um, with my editor and um, publisher, Mark uh, Cote uh, about this. And he said, there's your book, you know, go yeah. at it. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, but it is true. And we have been extraordinarily naive in our dealings with the people's Republic of China and the Chinese communist party Going back really to the 1940s, um, when uh, uh, Chou Enlai, who was Mao Zedong's right-hand man, um, uh, came across Canadian missionaries, particularly uh, in Sichuan province in uh, in Chongqing and Chengdu, and uh, they were mostly sort of left-leaning United Church missionaries, and he quickly, and, and, and uh, several of them were mish kids who had been born in China and therefore spoke Chinese and were well-versed in Chinese culture. And he realized that here was a very useful um, uh, window into the international world for the Chinese Communist Party. And he, he, uh, he, uh, he, he played them very well. He, he, um, uh, he, he established a fairly firm network of connections amongst uh, uh, particularly Mishkids, but also missionaries. Um, and uh, several of these people, um, after the, the, the Second World War, uh, became uh, uh, eminent in, and uh, uh, institutional in, in the formation of Canada's foreign policy and foreign policy right. establishment after the Second World War. And that was the beginning of it. And and we spent decades talking about how wonderful Dr. Norman Bethune was, which yeah. he was, but you know, mm. again, a very simplistic. <laughs> well, the, 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 we would look at the history of, uh, of Norman Bethune. Yes, there were there were aspects of uh, of, <laughs> uh, of genius, but there were also some pretty dark downsides <laughs> to him. Um, the uh, the Chinese uh, Communist Party version of Norman Bethune uh, has uh, has been. Uh, 
has been made acceptable for children. A lot of the story wouldn't <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't go on prime time. I can. Yes, tell you. yeah, we will we will discuss that at this moment. But you're absolutely right. That is uh, that is. So let let us look on at at today because they the Chinese are being declared by anybody. I've got reams of paper here saying that they are the huge security. The largest security threat uh, to us at this point, uh, far exceeding the Soviet Union or or Iran at this point, that they are infiltrating our universities. We're seeing in the United States how they've inter, um, uh, captured the political process, whether it's a driver for a, a senator or whether it's uh, a Chinese spy who woos a, an up and coming politician. This is, I mean, this is a long-standing campaign. You don't make that up overnight on no. the back of an envelope. No, no, it's been there from the beginning, and um, and it, but it's only recently, only really since 2012, since Xi Jinping came to power, that they, the Chinese Communist Party have decided that they are now powerful enough, influential enough, rich enough uh, to be able to stride out and uh, and uh, make their ambitions clear. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it is evident beyond doubt they intend to be uh, a global power at least and superpower if they can be. Um, they have uh, waged a very, very successful campaign of uh, not only acquiring technology and influence in, in the West, um, but also uh, such things as, you know, the territorial grab in the South China Sea, which mm -hmm. is a quite extraordinarily successful piece of, of uh, salami slicing, really. Um, mm -hmm. when, I, when I went to uh, Hong Kong in 1993, um, the, they were, the South China Sea was a bit of a mess. It was, a, it was the hub of piracy in the world at the time. Right. There were stories about, oh, you know, you, if you came across a Chinese coast guard, you never knew if he was a pirate or a fisherman or whatever, um, and they played all those roles. Uh, but you know, 30 years later, the, the South China Sea is a, uh, a Chinese lake and um, uh, with hardly a shot fired and, and right. no repercussions because they've been very careful only to take small steps, incremental steps, and never, never firm enough to... Uh, to get retribution from particularly the United States or from or from the the the, uh, the littoral states, um, uh, Vietnam, Philippines, and the others. Um, are they are they happy that Joe Biden has been elected? Uh, I think they're probably looking quite carefully because I think you know one of the things that is evident from uh, the little that we've heard so far since since Joe Biden was elected was that he and his his people have realised that one of the few things that Trump did that was widely popular in the United States mm -hmm. beyond beyond the, the bounds of of his cult followers uh, was his. Uh, was his policy towards the People's Republic of China. The and, tougher line. Well, and yeah, all the indications so far are um, that Biden intends to uh, follow the same sort of course, perhaps with a different tone, and one hopes with a with a, a, a broader sense of, of, of how everything fits together, which one never got from Trump. Um, but, uh, but certainly I, I don't expect the policy to change dramatically. I think that Biden and the Democrats will carry on with something pretty similar because it's very popular amongst Americans and indeed and, elsewhere. 
And because they actually have to. And because they have to. You know, we are, we, we, no, I mean, you're right. We, we are at a moment of, of superpower transition. Right. Um, we are, we are, we are, we're, so the equivalent, I guess, would be uh, the winter of, of 1918-19 and the Treaty of Versailles, where essentially the, the, the baton of, of world superpower was uh-huh. passed from Britain to the United States. Now, we are, we are now, now that was a friendly and purposeful uh, and agreed handover at that right. point. Um, we're, we're not in the same situation now. We're in a situation where uh, um, uh, China is going to grab it if it if uh, or take it if it can get it without too much problem and but grab it if it can't and we're also in a period where you know the US's internal problems are making it more and more difficult for it to to um, keep the stance the same stance on the world as it's had for the last 50 60 years or so give us your take on the Huawei situation and the two Michaels <laughs> mm. no <laughs> yeah I, this is a I mean this is a hugely fraught thing um uh, I, let me say first of all, uh, my first instinct, and this happened just as the as the book Clause of the Panda was coming out, and so right. I mean it was the most, ex- in terms of publishing, it was the most extraordinary piece of good fortune because the Huawei affair has um, uh, cemented and shown to every Canadian and other people exactly what I was talking about in the book. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I wish it had happened earlier. I mean, I, I you know, this, uh, we needed this sort of crisis to wake up to Canadians, focus our attention, to focus exactly. our attention yeah. on the on the on the on the the relationship. And you know what the Huawei affair has really shown is that we have no common values with the Chinese Communist Party. We cannot have the sort of relationship with. Um, with Beijing under the Chinese Communist Party that we can have with other countries in Asia. Now, you know, a, a good example is say it had been uh, a, 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 an executive, senior executive of a Japanese or a South Korean company that had uh, that, that we had detained on behalf of the uh, the U.S. Uh, Department of Justice. There would have been friction. There is no doubt. But there, but there would not have been the crisis in the relationship that we have seen with China, um, whose first instinct, first instinct, was to take hostages. And right. we can't have a reasonable relationship with any country whose first instinct, when there's a problem, is to take hostages. Now, you know, I, the, the, there is a real problem about. Um, what to do about the two Michaels. We are confronted on the one hand with the necessity for maintaining our adherence to the rule of law and the the independent judiciary. Um, And I think perhaps more important at this juncture um, that we, um, we, uh, we when we sign an international treaty, as we have with the United States on, on uh, extradition, that we stick to it. We are, if we're entering a world where um, the, the, the U.S. is a shrinking superpower, we are going to be depending more and more on our relationship with other middle powers. Uh, and we need them to trust that when we sign a treaty or make an agreement, we stick to it. So I think that of, of the, the issues involved uh, 
in the Huawei affair, the business of, of sticking to the treaty is in, in the long run for Canada the most important. That said, we need to get the two Michaels out of yep. there. Um, now, how we do it, I've, I, I really am perplexed. I mean, I've got good friends who say, look, um, maintaining Canada's international reputation for, for its, keeping its word is more important. They are afraid our uh, collateral damage. Um, that's true. I wish it wasn't true. Yeah. Uh, I wish it wasn't deeply. But, you know, but it reinforces every day the sort of country and the sort of regime we're dealing with. I, I, let me take away country because I think a, 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 a crucially important thing for us Canadians where we have you know 1.5 million people in Canada who are of, of ethnic Chinese heritage. We need to remember we're talking about the Chinese Communist Party yeah, and the People's Republic of China, Chinese people. not China. Absolutely. And we need to keep that always firmly at the front of our mind. But I don't know where we get where we where, how this ends. Um, we'll see if Biden is prepared to uh, to, to drop the, uh, the the charges against Meng Wanzhou. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm afraid that that, that whatever happens, uh, the, the uh, Chinese Communist Party will will not give them to Michael's back easily. They will want to maintain the fiction that they, this was not a, a hostage taking. Um, right. So I'm afraid we, we have some time to go on this. I, I wish I could be more optimistic. No, I mean, that there, there doesn't seem to be reason. And then it influences everything else. We're watching what the Chinese are doing with the, the Muslim population, the Uyghurs. And we were, were and Hong Kong, you know, Hong and Kong, Kong. Hong Kong is a ready. Canadian city, <laughs> exactly. And and we're prepared to mm. employ the Majinsky, you know, yes. sanctions in other situations. Yeah. Which you know, if this wasn't China, we'd be doing in a nanosecond. Well, I think we should, and I think that we, should, you know, the the uh, uh, Beijing has in Canada about as many, if not slightly more. Um, diplomats, so-called diplomats, as the mm -hmm. United States. Yeah. Um, there is absolutely no reason for that. Many of them are what are called two-hatted, means that right. they're, they're, they're basically uh, security agents, they're, they're intelligence agents of one sort or another, or they're there to intimidate uh, Canadians um, or to uh, keep tabs on uh, Chinese students at Canadian universities and colleges. We should expel a whole slew of them. Yeah. yeah. Um, and why we're giving them security yeah. contracts in our embassies is also uh, well, troubling. That's nonsense. And why are we training, uh, why are we training yeah. Chinese policemen at a college in Vancouver? You know, I yeah. mean, this is uh, why are we training uh, or, or doing joint exercises with Chinese troops? In, in mean, the military. This is, this is, this is all nonsense. The issue that is really, and, and again, you know, as you say, it's all about timing in terms of what grabs the public attention and allows them to understand a complicated issue in another way. This whole discussion, and it was back in December, this is about the vaccines. I mean, we're sitting here with a crisis at this moment. It may or may not be relieved over the next couple of weeks as new players come on the market, but, but we can't open our businesses until people are vaccinated and 
and that's a that's a crisis. So we've got now this um, situation where we were entering the National Research Council with Prime Minister Trudeau's endorsement, entering into a, you know, creating a vaccine with the Chinese, and then surprise, surprise, they had uh, production delays, and we don't get any. I mean, the this is again this question it's it's not just naivete this is costing lives absolutely and you know and this goes back to i mean we were talking about a bit earlier how the need once this this uh, pandemic is over is to keep a tally of the things this has taught us and that we need right. to address and you know we clearly need to have the capacity to produce vaccines we used to have yeah. it with the Connaught labs we need that again we also need to really examine what the hell goes on in, in our senior uh, uh, care homes and exactly. care homes generally. You know, what's yeah. it, over 80% of the people who have died, yeah. died in care homes? Absolutely. But, but what the heck is going on? What is yeah. the management of these places? Why are they not being um, uh, properly licensed? Why are they not being inspected in the way they ought to be? I mean, we we, we need a real hard look at this. Um, and we need to do it on a national scale of course but again you know we, we're dealing with the federal provincial divisions of authority uh-huh. um but uh, uh and as you said you know we need to look at energy and we need to look at, uh, at, um, at water and food and all these things but but uh you know clearly we need to be able to produce vaccines um, and and I mean, it's our as citizens, as mm-hmm. each and every one of us. I mean, we we love to get mm-hmm. the cheap bargain at Walmart or the dollar store, and and mm-hmm. it comes from China at the cost of jobs and manufacturing in our own country. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things we should look at, you know, the, the Swedes have really uh, recently introduced uh, legislation called the right to repair. Um, and this means that hmm. any any product, and particularly mechanical or appliance on on the market, has to be capable of being repaired. Um, you know, most of the stuff we buy now isn't. Wow. You know, um, I think that that's. Uh, but you, you, I mean, remember all the jobs that there used to be in the maintenance and upkeep of of, of appliances of one sort or another that have yeah. all disappeared because you know when the the fridge or the stove or the the laptop or whatever um, uh, is over, you just you don't repair it, you chuck it out, um, and that's not a very sensible economy in this day and age. <laughs> but also, you know, a lot of the stuff when it arrives doesn't work anyway. I talked yeah. to, I remember. I, I bought a, a, a coffee machine for my uh, daughter-in-law many Christmases ago. Um, and uh, when she opened it on, on Christmas Day, it didn't work. So on Boxing Day, I took it back to the the, 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 the big box store where I bought it and uh, got a new one. And I was talking with the guy behind the counter and he said, go out in the back and look at the at the, uh, yeah, at the, at the, the garbage. pile of stuff. And, uh, and I talked to to people who get stuff manufactured in China after that, and they said anywhere between a third and a half doesn't work when it comes out of the the shipping container. Um, you know, we're we're important. It's cheap, but we're important. Yeah. I talked to Chinese officials about this, and I said, you know, when are you going to start producing stuff that lasts? He said, you don't want it. You want the cheap price. Yeah, and we'll produce it cheap, but no, it's it, it, it won't work after a while. 
but that's not what you want. You want to pay very little and for it to uh, to uh, uh, be able and not have to to uh, to to pay large amounts of money. For but it. can so, we afford this in our Western economies? I mean, we're mm, watching President Biden talk mm, about Buy America. Mm, uh, every president tries that at some point or another, depending on the crisis. Uh, can we afford? Um, by Canadian policies, if we're going to pay people twenty dollars an hour or sixty dollars an hour uh, compared to fifty cents. Well, you know, I mean, we this we, our conversation is coming full circle, Ramada, right. Because if we don't, we're going to get populists. We're going to yeah. get people who are disenchanted, who have no role in the community, who have no standing in the community, um, and uh, who uh, will. Uh, Will fall for any flim flam artist that comes down the road. You know, we 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 uh, we have to, I think, be far far more careful about ensuring that uh, as we go down the road, we all go down the road together, um, and um, uh, and that means uh, that may mean you know, um, uh, that, that that costs money. It does. Yeah, it, and it, it costs it, money. It, it costs money, but but you know, it, if it's a if it's a choice between money and and social and political security, I, I know where I I jump on that one. Jonathan, so great to uh, to talk with you. There's all these we we've got to take this on, and you're right, and you seem kind of hopeful in a way because you talk about restoring democracy yeah. <laughs> as if yeah. that's possible. Well, it is. You know, yeah. um, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I I wrote the book the way it is um, was because I was very tired of the endless uh, not only books but magazine articles and newspaper articles about the death of democracy it's right. far more resi- it's resilient but but yeah. you need you need to tend it it's a garden you need to yeah. to look after it you need to to fertilize it you need to to rotate the crops you know <laughs> you, yes you need, exactly um and you need to to look after the infestations when they happen um so it's uh, but but yeah i am optimistic i am the life uh, lived as an observer, it, it has made you very smart, well, Mr. Manthorpe. Thank you. My pleasure to see you again. And thanks for sharing all this. Uh, if you have a chance, go and get these uh, books, um, because Restoring Democracy in the Age of Populace and pes- Pestilence, and also uh, The Claws of the Pandas. I say it's it's a difficult read, but we need to know this. We need to educate ourselves, and thank you for helping. We'll talk to you again, I hope. Oh, I hope so, Pamela. Thank you. All right. Jonathan Manthorpe. And that's uh, that's our, our program for today. Thanks for joining. Mm-hmm.